0: Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit and follow If you
1: have a Bible, let's turn if we can to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Um, just as we turn there, just to give you a little heads up that this morning's sermon is going to be a touch longer than normal. Um, so I want you to not panic if we get to the 30 minute mark and you notice that I'm not anywhere close to landing. Um, We are going to be going just a little longer than normal because the text that we're going to be reading today is quite a lengthy passage. We're going to be reading uh, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 in its entirety. Uh, So two chapters of the Bible, um, we're going to be setting aside uh, eight to 10 minutes to read that. So just a heads up, we are going to be going a touch longer in the sermon, but don't worry, you will still be able to make it to the 5.30 kickoff for the Super Bowl tonight. So don't stress, don't stress about that. There's a, there's a single word that I think can summarize uh, the sermon that I, I want to share today. It's a word that every single one of us in this room are very familiar with. It's, it, it's actually on, the, on clothing that some of you are wearing today. Uh, it, it represents one of the most uh, valuable and recognizable brands of all time. Anyone want to hazard a guess? It's not Adidas, as Aidan was wearing today in both. It's Nike. It's the word Nike. The the word Nike actually means, well, let me just say, I think the Greek pronunciation, although I'm not Greek, I think the Greek pronunciation is closer to Nike, But that doesn't sound as trendy as as Nike does. But the word Nike means victorious or to be victorious or to conquer or to overcome. And and that is the the central and singular message that Jesus preaches and declares over the seven churches that he writes to in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And that's the question that we're going to be asking today. What does the victorious Christian life look like? What does it mean to, to overcome? What does it mean to, to live in the triumph and victory of Jesus? And I, and I love the, the way worship went this morning because that's the essence of what God was already starting to stir our hearts for this morning. We're in a, in a, a six-week series through the book of Revelation. We, we're focusing this year on Revelation chapters 1 through 7, and we're going we're gonna to tackle the rest of Revelation next year. But we're taking six weeks to, to walk our way through the, the first seven chapters of the book of, of, of Revelation, a series that we've called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And last week, as a point of kind of you know, just emphasizing the importance, but also catching up, if you, if you weren't here— Last week, we spent time looking specifically at the first four verses in Revelation chapter one. If we can understand those first four verses, it helps us to, to know how we are to navigate the particular book. In Revelation chapter one, verse one, we learned firstly that Revelation is an apocalypse. Now, the word apocalypse is a, is a genre of, or style of writing that was very familiar around the time of Jesus uses lots of symbols. And essentially, it means to reveal or to, to unveil or to unmask. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the apocalypse or the revelation, the unveiling or the unmasking of or from Jesus, depending on the translation that you have. And, and both the revelation of Jesus and the revelation from Jesus, both are, are, are equally valid. This particular book is a revelation from Jesus, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who is unmasking or who is, who is unveiling or revealing the spiritual powers and forces that are at work behind the persecution of his church. But also we learned last week that this is a revelation of Jesus. This is an unveiling or, or an unmasking of the one who is seated on the throne, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has triumphed over sin and sin and over the devil and over death and the one who will bring us, his people, into victory. We conquer because Jesus has already conquered. We walk into into victory because Jesus is already victorious. And we said this last week, but the the essential message of the book of Revelation is is the word that, that Jesus speaks to John in Revelation chapter one, verse 17. He says these words, fear not. Fear not. Fear not because I am on the throne. Our strength and our confidence doesn't come and our peace doesn't come in in our circumstances or it, it doesn't come from our circumstances or the things that we can do or the things that we have. Our courage and our confidence and our peace come from the reality that Jesus Christ is on the throne. And our Savior, as it describes in in the first chapter, our Savior is the one who has has eyes like fire, who has a double edged sword coming out of his mouth, whose voice is is like the thunderous waterfall, and his face shines in all its brilliance. That's where we get our confidence and our courage from. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus has been apocalypsed, He has been revealed. Secondly, we learned last week in, in verse two that revelation is a testimony or a witness. It's, it's testifying, it's witnessing to the fact that Jesus is Lord of all, that, that, that he is the one who reigns and rules in, in authority. Thirdly, in verse three, revelation is a prophecy. This is not the, the work of human imagination. This is the word of God that declares, thus says the Lord. The book of Revelation is actually divided into into four visions that that John has. And it describes, John says, I was in the Spirit. Four times John says, I was in the Spirit. And and in that moment, God begins to reveal things to John. And the very first moment of John being in the Spirit is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which is chapters 1, 2, and 3. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. John says on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then lastly, verse four, Revelation is a letter. John is writing this book to seven churches who, who, who meet in those seven cities that I've just read in what is now modern-day Turkey, and they are facing intense persecution from the Romans and from the Jews. These were, these were seven real churches, but they were also seven representative churches. These churches represented churches across all time and in all cultures, and that's what is so genius about this particular book. Jesus is speaking to, into the specific circumstances of seven churches, but it's a word that expands all time and, and, and all culture. It's very significant that the first vision that John has is of Jesus. But just as significant is the vision that John has of Jesus is Jesus speaking to his churches. We see that time and time again, as we're gonna read in a few moments through the book of Revelation 2 and 3. We're gonna see firstly, the letters start with, these are the words of him, followed by a description of Jesus. And it concludes each letter with an invitation for the church to, to, to listen to what he's saying. Whoever has ears that's us, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whatever the difference is between those seven churches, whatever the difference is between this church or Park Community Church or New Life or any church in the city that lifts up the name of Jesus, no matter the difference, I trust there are two things that would remain the same. Jesus speaks and His people are invited to listen. Jesus speaks and His people are invited to listen. And so with that as an introduction, I'm going to invite Colleen to come up. Colleen, I've asked to to read for us Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, just so that you don't hear my voice the whole time. And uh, so if you have a Bible, follow along, or there's going to be words behind on the screen.
0: Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecutions for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum right? these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds." to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creations. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent." Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Colleen. What an incredible yet challenging passage of scripture. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not easy to read, and uh, you're probably thinking, my goodness, there are tons of questions that you have as you, as you read this passage. And unfortunately, we don't have the time to answer all of those questions. But the, the question that I want to go after today, the question that I want to try and answer today, is what does the victorious Christian life look like? Seven times you see the phrase, to him, to the one. Who overcomes? To the one who is victorious, to the one who is Nikeid or Nikeid. What does it mean to What does it mean to conquer? What does it mean to, to overcome? It's a question that is asked by the text, but I want to say it's it's also important for us to ask and answer this question because it is, in my opinion, the word of God spoken to Anthem Church for this particular year. We as a church give a lot of space and 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 honor and room for the prophetic. We believe God speaks to us, to His people, through the prophetic gift and to those who are particularly gifted in that way, to, to, to speak God's Word to us. Last year, Chanel, a friend of ours, ministered over our church and spoke to us on, on that Sunday morning of her week, weekend with us. And, and she believed and spoke that, that, that God was positioning us for victory. God was positioning us to step into victory upon victory. She, she read from Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, which says, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed, has, has overcome. It's, a, it's the same word, Nikeed that we've been focusing on already. It was interesting that weekend, and she, she pointed it out, that, that Judah, Emmanuel Cox, was born that weekend, four weeks prematurely. And she believed it was something of a, a prophetic statement that God was saying, you as a church are stepping into victory. She went on to say that we need to contend for the victory that God wants to lead us into, that we need to take hold of or exercise the victory through the divine strategies that God is giving us, and that we mustn't settle for anything less than Jesus has secured for us on the cross. So the question back then in November, and the question right now is the same question I'm gonna ask you, what are you trusting to see victory in in your life? What are you contending for? When you look back on 2020, what is the testimony that you wanna have of how Jesus has delivered you and led you into the victory that he has already won? Think about that for a moment. If you haven't answered it, I wanna encourage you to set aside some time to to make sure that you are able to answer that question. But no matter how you answer that question, Whatever the specifics are for you, I believe Revelation 2 and 3 reveal to us or show us what the victorious Christian looks like. Thanks. Some of us, when we... Think of the issue, the the victorious Christian life. We ask, we think to ourselves, what does it look like when we, uh, what does the victorious Christian life look like, looks like? Sometimes I think we can answer the question in a way that is not too dissimilar from the world. We might think the victorious Christian life looks like material wealth or a good reputation. maybe healthy relationships or if you have children happy children happy kids a long life or a sense of favor in what God has called you to put your hand to there's nothing wrong with that list and many people here are living in the reality of those blessings but those are blessings that God gives us through his grace and are gifts given to us but they are not signs of what it means to live victoriously in Jesus they can't be We've just read two passages of, sorry, we've just read two chapters out of this particular book and it, and it indicates to us very clearly two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, who appear to be really struggling churches. It describes them as afflicted and poor and slandered and fearful and persecuted and weak. I mean, if, if those words were used to describe or were put on their Yelp review, I guarantee no one here in this church would go and visit that one. But yet Jesus says to those churches, well done, keep going. And two other churches, Sardis and Laodicea, appear to be successful. In fact, to Sardis, Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive. I mean, who wouldn't wanna go to a church that has a reputation of of life? But yet Jesus says to those churches, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. The point I'm trying to make is that the victorious Christian life doesn't necessarily come with the signs of success that the world would easily recognise. At times it can be. There's nothing wrong with having those particular signs of success like wealth and and, and the favour of God clearly upon us. But those are not necessarily signs of, of, of the victorious Christian life. The, the world often easily overlooks those things. I think sometimes we actually make the same mistake when it comes to our assessment, as it were, of Christian leaders. Think about the last Christian conference you went to if you attended a Christian conference. Or if you haven't been to a Christian conference recently, think about the last time you read a bio of somebody who's preaching at a Christian conference. And if you haven't done that, go and find a Christian conference that you don't intend to go to, but look at the bios of the people who are speaking. And I guarantee you will never find this. You will never find this said of one of the speakers. This couple Faithfully led their church of less than one hundred for the past twenty five years. You will never find one of those buyers because I tell you why the Christian conferences are marketed to those people who should be at, who they think should be attending the conference, not speaking at the conference. We have such a worldly view of what success looks like, and we must be careful not to be drawn into that. Paul, who was clearly the most successful leader after Jesus, would probably have been overlooked by many People today, Paul was single. Let me just say that for a moment. Not many Christian leaders and successful in our eyes, our eyes, Christian leaders are actually single, and we need to see more single people rising up and stepping into the call and destiny of God and making an impact in the world. Paul was poor; he had to hold down a couple of jobs in order to make ends meet. Paul was frequently beaten. And persecuted and left for dead, Paul was fearful. Read Acts chapter 18. Paul was not a particularly good speaker. There's an account in the book of Acts that described Paul speaking on and on and on, so much so that someone fell out of the second story window to their death. I mean, Paul did eventually raise them from the dead again, but... I've preached some doozies before, but I've never actually killed someone through one of my, <laughs> through one of my sermons. But the point is we're, we're still living in the legacy of, of Paul's teaching and Paul's ministry, despite the fact that many in the world would probably consider him unsuccessful. So if the victorious Christian life isn't necessarily material wealth or a good reputation and so on, what is it? For the church in Ephesus... The victorious Christian life looked like love. Look at verse four. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things do the things you did at first. When a relationship, whether it's our relationship with Jesus or, or a friendship or our marriage, when a relationship grows cold and we start to lose that closeness and intimacy, a good question to ask ourselves is, What did we do at first as a way of rekindling that particular intimacy? I'm in the market for a new pillow. I have been on the market for a new pillow for 24 years. We've been married for 25. Here's the backstory. I had a pillow that was my favourite pillow for 15 years. I brought it into marriage, and a year into marriage, without telling me, my wife threw it out. And since that day, I'm still searching for the perfect pillow. And here's my simple criteria. What was that pillow like at first? That's, the, that's, the, that's what I'm going after and I haven't yet found it. But the point I'm trying to make is simply this. If, 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 if we've lost that intimacy, if we've lost that closeness with Jesus, ask yourself the question, what was it like at first? You probably didn't have much of an agenda as you grew in your relationship with Jesus. And I wanna suggest, if your love for Jesus has grown cold. Go back to those things that you did at first without an agenda. Spend time with Him, walking with Him, reading His Word for no other reason than just to read His Word. Listen to worship. Something that I'm doing, or something that I'm trying to do more and more as, as a way to be, to be more sensitive to God's presence is to, is to not ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit to pray for people. Sometimes we think that a prayer time for somebody has to be 30 minutes set aside to pray for Aidan and Eloise. Friends, so often the Holy Spirit is prompting us at our place of work while we're driving to school. Set aside time just to quickly respond to Him and it cultivates our love for Him once again. Overcoming looks like love. First for Jesus and then overflowing to others. Secondly, for the church in Smyrna, the victorious Christian life looked like death. Not many amens to that one. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. This is our first introduction to martyrs, those men and women who lay their life down for their faith in Jesus. This is our first introduction to them and it becomes a a very prominent theme throughout the book of Revelation. I came across this statistic this week that, that in church history, one in 120 Christians would have been killed or martyred for their faith in Jesus. That's one and a half or two of us in this room. Although probably it won't actually be one and a half or two of us in this room. And I don't know how half of us can give our our, our life for the sake of Jesus. But the point being is, even though it's probably not going to be our experience, I want to say we have to establish or embrace a, a, a theology of giving our lives for Jesus, because this is the reality that many of our brothers and sisters are facing in other parts of the world. And it forces us, it encourages us to read the scriptures, not just from a downtown urban Chicago context. It forces us to read the scriptures from a global context and perspective. And even if martyrdom won't be our experience, practically or physically, every single one of us know that the Christian life starts with the death symbolised through baptism as we lay our lives down and Christ raises us up. Overcoming looks like death. Every part of our lives surrendered to Jesus. For the church in Pergamum, the victorious Christian life looked like repentance. Verse 14 through 16, there are some, of you, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And it goes on, and you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. This is not a repentance, a a once-off repentance that we do as we surrender our hearts to Jesus for the very first time. This is not repentance in a, oh, woe is me, I'm such an absolute failure as a follower of Jesus. This is not repentance in the hope that we would do our bit so that we can access the presence of God. This is understanding that repentance is a beautiful gift given to us by the Father, this is understanding that repentance is something that draws us into intimacy with Jesus and it flows from learning how to walk with the Holy Spirit. Repentance simply means to to turn away, to to turn around from the path that we were following. We don't enter God's presence with repentance. We enter God's presence with thanksgiving and praise. Father, I love You. Father, I thank You for the gift of Your Son. Father, I thank You that we can come boldly and in that place of being in His presence, we begin to turn away from those things which hold us back. I'm gonna show my age, but does anyone know that Bonnie Tyler song, Total Eclipse of the Heart? I mean, literally repentance is like Bonnie Tyler behind you the whole time. Turn around, turn around. I mean, that's what repentance is. It's walking with the Lord. And then Bonnie Tyler telling us, turn around. And we follow the way that the Lord would want us to go. No, overlooking. (laughs) Repent in Jesus' name. (laughs) Overcoming looks like repentance, turning away from anything that distracts us from following Jesus. For the church in Thyatira, the victorious Christian life looks like intolerance. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, the the false teaching that that, that, that she was represented by who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads many my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've chosen this word intentionally because I know you're probably thinking, how can we be intolerant? And intolerance is never appropriate when it comes to people. But intolerance is totally appropriate when it comes to setting aside those things that will eventually destroy us in our walk with the Lord. I think love almost always expresses itself in some degree of intolerance in some way. We celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary a couple of weeks back. And we, I had planned the, what I was hoping to be the perfect romantic dinner out, It was to a restaurant that we'd been to a couple times in the last 12 or 15 years. And previously, it had always been just a beautiful romantic evening. I was hoping for something quiet. I was hoping for something intimate. I was hoping for good food, and that's not what we got. I was intolerant of the small portion sizes that made me eat a bowl of cereal when I got back home. I was intolerant of the fact that it was restaurant week and we were clearly being rushed out so that the next group of people could come in. And I was intolerant of the fact that I ended up sitting closer to two people either side of me than Debs who seemed far away. And I was listening to their conversation more than I was listening to hers. Do you get the point of intolerance? Because I love you and because I love this church, I am intolerant of anything and everything that would keep us back. From becoming all that God has for us. Overcoming looks like intolerance. Intolerance against sin that slowly pulls me away from Jesus. For the church inside us, the victorious Christian life looked like looks like wakefulness or alertness. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Wake up, Jesus says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. We need to be awake. We need to be alert. We need to be aware of the urgency of the hour and the call of God that is on our life. I remember so clearly this this funny story that happened probably a year after we had arrived in in the States. It was back in the day when we still had landlines. You remember, some of you will remember those days and and the and the telemarketers were, were an issue back then, but they weren 't the issue that they are right now and I remember our phone ringing and Deb 's going off and answering the phone and and she was out of the room for probably twenty minutes and I was really intrigued as to what the conversation that she was having. so I walked into the room and I heard her going yes, Hmm. yes, that's good, yeah, okay. And then she, she goes, hang on one second. And then she holds the phone silent. She goes, babe, this nice gentleman on the phone has been telling me about a way he can save money on our insurance. I really think we need to listen to him. The point being, she was not alert or aware as to what this man was actually trying to do. Get her money. And we must be careful that we are not those people who are not alert and aware and, and, and awake to the, the spiritual realities of things that are happening in our lives and in the culture around us. If there's one thing I've learned about studying Revelation over these past six months, it's awakened me to the reality of, of, of the attack of the devil that is constantly trying to pull me away from serving Jesus Christ. Overcoming looks like being awake and alert not being indifferent or apathetic. For the church in Philadelphia, the victorious Christian life looked like endurance. Verse 11, I am coming soon, Jesus says. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Jesus has nothing but praise for this church. And he says to them, hold on, keep going. It's like the marathon runner who who finally makes that turn and he or she has got a mile and a half to go and it's that sense of keep going, don't give up. Some of you here have been serving Jesus faithfully year after year after year. And victory for you will look something probably very unsexy, but will look like for you being here next year, continuing to serve God faithfully. Some of you here haven't been serving Jesus that long, but the very day you started, it's felt like this uphill run the whole time. And I wanna say victory for you is holding on and enduring and allowing Jesus to bring you into victory. To both, to everyone who is needing the strength to endure, Jesus says, well done, keep going. And then finally, for the church in Laodicea, the victorious Christian life looks like zeal. Verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Think about this, piping hot chili on a cold Sunday afternoon, delicious. Crisp, ice-cold watermelon on a hot, humid Chicago day. Refreshing. Yesterday's curry warmed in a microwave for half the amount of time that it should have been, and you taste that that, that first forkful, it's the spawn of Satan. It absolutely is. (laughs) Piping hot, we love. Freezing cold we love, but lukewarm, it tastes terrible. And, and Jesus is saying essentially that. He wants us on fire. He wants us passionate. He wants us wholehearted. He wants us all in. Not, not nominal, not indifferent, not otherwise, not, not uncommitted. Overcoming looks like zeal, passion for the things that God is passionate about. Now I know as we bring this into land, I know this is an incredibly challenging li- list, and the victorious Christian life is, is not just as easy as the things that we read in the very beginning. Material wealth and a good reputation and healthy relationships and happy kids if you have them and a long life and a sense of favor. I mean, honestly, uh, some of us, God, God could give all of us all of that at a moment's notice. And some of us are living in the reality of that. And those need to be received and celebrated as God's good and gracious gifts to us. But Jesus says that's not the sign of the victorious Christian life. Jesus' list includes love, death, repentance, intolerance, alertness, endurance, and zeal. If you're like me, you've probably read this and you think, my goodness, that's not easy. But there's two amazing promises as we end this morning that Jesus gives Firstly, at the end of every single letter, Jesus clearly lays out amazing promises to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, to the one who Nikes. Jesus says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. He says that we will not be hurt by the second death this promise of eternal life, both now and forevermore. He says, I will give hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. You know, Can I be honest? I have absolutely no idea what that means, but I know it's gonna be good. It's, it's, like, it's like going to Christmas and you, there's seven gifts for you and you know what six of the seven are and you have no idea what number seven is, but you know it's gonna be good. That's what that one is exactly like. He says, I will give authority over nations. I will acknowledge your name before my father and his angels. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God and I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Wonderful promises to the one who overcomes. But, but, but secondly, and perhaps this is most significant for us all, at the end of his strongest letter, at the end of the letter where his rebuke seems the, seems the harshest, Jesus essentially says to the church in Philadelphia sorry to the church in in Laodicea and to us he says I am rebuking you because I love you because I love you deeply look at verse 19 of chapter 3 those whom I love I rebuke and discipline So be earnest and repent. Here I am, Jesus says. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will eat with that person and they with me. What Jesus is saying is, is my love and my passion for you, for me, is piping hot. And He doesn't want us to be lukewarm. He's saying to us, if I thought it was over for you, if I thought there was no future for you, if I thought that you couldn't do this, I wouldn't be challenging you in this way. But I know there is so much more for you. He's saying, I'm not a lukewarm saviour and I don't want you to be a lukewarm bride. I want you to to be as zealous for me as I am for you and I will give you that strength to be zealous because I'm knocking at the door. I'm knocking at the door of your heart and I'm asking you if you would allow me to come in and eat with you and be close with you and give you the strength that you need so that we can celebrate victory together. Friends, Jesus is knocking on the door of every one of our hearts this morning. So often we use this text from Revelation chapter three as a salvation message. And there is certain, certainly application for this today. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, I wanna tell you right now, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart because He wants, to, uh, he wants you to respond so that He can have relationship with you. Today is the invitation for salvation to, to have relationship with, with God the Father through surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. But I wanna say, God is not just knocking on the door of people who don't know Him. God is knocking on the door of every single one of our hearts. He wants us to be victorious. He wants us to overcome. He wants us to to hear His Word and for us to respond. He he wants us to open the door and to let Him in. And I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes for a moment because I want to just reread a couple of those uh, signs of the victorious Christian life. Because I, I believe some, or if not all of us, are being challenged in some way through this text. Just as you close your eyes, I, I want you to just allow the Holy Spirit to just paint that picture of Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. His desire is intimacy and closeness. He wants us to let him in so that he can revive our love for him and for others. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe your heart has grown cold towards Jesus and Jesus, or maybe your heart has grown cold to others. And God wants to revive His love, your love for Him, so that it can overflow into love for others. Maybe Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart so that He can give you the courage to surrender everything to Him. Death means a total surrender. And if you're anything like me, there are parts of my life that I know that I've held on and haven't found the courage to surrender completely to Jesus. Maybe today that invitation is coming to you from Jesus to to come and enjoy intimacy with Him so that you can lay everything down. Maybe Jesus is wanting to have intimacy and fellowship with you so that He can give you the, the, so that He can help you to turn away or turn away from the sin that is holding you back. Maybe there are some of you here today who are struggling to break cycles of sin. I wanna trust with you that today is the day through the power of Jesus' name where that is broken off. Maybe Jesus is inviting you in so that He can help you not to tolerate, not to dabble, not to to be clear about those things that can eventually destroy us. It's trust today that in Jesus, in Jesus' name, we can make a clean break from those things that will, that will hurt us. Maybe Jesus wants us to become alert and aware to the spiritual realities. Maybe He wants us to be alert and aware to the, to the call of God that is on your life, for us to respond to Him. Maybe it's strength to endure. Maybe your heart's cry is, Lord, give me the strength to put one foot in front of the next. I'm weak, I'm tired, I'm weary. God, would you strengthen me to put one foot in front of the next? Maybe it's an invitation for zeal, for Jesus to blow His Holy Spirit upon you and to blow those embers in your heart to flame once again for our hearts to be wholehearted. Lord, as we come before you this morning, as you've spoken to us today, we know that you are knocking at the door of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name for the strength, the courage to open that door and to allow you to come in. Lord, we know there's going to be change. When we open our hearts to You, we know there's going to be change. When we surrender everything to You, we know there's going to be change. Let us not be afraid of that, Lord. Holy Spirit, would You breathe on Your people?
0: again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.